Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is Episode 7, State of New York versus Sheila Davalu, and State of Connecticut versus Sheila Davalu. Tonight, we're talking about the 2002 murder of Annalisa Ramundo and the 2003 attempted murder of Paul Christos. Christos's wife, Sheila Davalu, was obsessed with a co-worker named Nelson Sessler, who had chosen Ramundo over her. After months of stalking Cecil and Ramundo, Davalu attacked Ramundo in her Stanford, Connecticut condominium, beating her and stabbing her multiple times. Six months later, she attacked Christos, stabbing him three times, including once in a hospital parking lot in front of witnesses. We'll talk about the evidence against Davalu, her trials and convictions, and the prison sentences that will keep her behind bars for at a minimum of 75 years. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm certainly excited about this case, especially after watching the uh, Killer Woman uh, Women documentary on Netflix this afternoon. It, it, it just... I mean, when you first texted me, and I, I believe you said the word, it was uh, hilarious or something like that, watching her uh, watching her with Pierce, um, it, priceless, excuse me. I, I'll tell you, I came, I came to the conclusion, just sitting there, and I mean, maybe we can talk about this, just based upon the story she was spinning with her husband, this woman, did, I'm interested to find out, did she have any psychiatrics done on her? Did the state do any sort of workup on her? Did she try to get any workup done on her? Like, she is well, insane. Well, we'll get into that a little bit 
a little bit later. I do have a few announcements I want to make, and actually more than more than the one I spoke of when we initially talked. Ha ha. Um, (laughs) The first is, today is April 27th, Uh, Caitlin Rother, a a former guest on the show, has authored a new book called Death on Ocean Boulevard, uh, Inside the Coronado Mansion Mystery, or something to that effect. I don't have it in front of me, and I apologize if I'm uh, mistitling it. It is available today at your local bookseller, at major chain booksellers like Barnes and Noble. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, go out and pick up a copy. It's available on Kindle, probably on Nook. Um, I highly recommend it. Ro- Caitlin Rother is a fantastic true crime writer. Um, we will also be posting next week a bonus episode which is an interview that we conducted with Miss Rother in advance of her book release. So yes, that is that announcement was, number one. <laughs> that was a great interview, by the way. So anybody that's waiting on that, yeah, definitely, uh, you should be excited. It was, and, and like I said, Kate Lynn Rother is a fantastic crime, true crime writer. Uh, if you haven't read her already, I highly highly recommend her because uh, she really is, you know, she's almost, I, I think, taking the place of Ann Rule, and I find she's a little bit better than Ann Rule. Right. And I know there are some people out there thinking sacrilege, but give her books a read and you'll you'll probably agree with me. And then uh, also a few announcements. Um, Howard Guidry, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, has uh, – Denied him release okay. on his uh, federal habeas claim. He was sentenced oh, okay. and, and retried and resentenced to death in Texas for the murder of Farrah Frada. Um, so he, more likely than not, will take it take a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, but. Um, that is event pretty much the end of his federal habeas claim. And also Rodney Reed's hearings have been pushed back to July. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal has affirmed the U.S. District Court's dismissal of Reed's state law DNA challenge in federal court. Mm-hmm. So basically... Uh, the district court found that Reed waited too long to file the federal claim. He should have filed it in 2014 or no later than 2016, but he waited until 2019. Okay. Uh, And that's under statute, you know, it's under statute of limitations, um, which are fairly common and very common in civil law, um, not applied quite as often in criminal law, but they they do exist. You can't sit on a claim and raise it when you are unsuccessful on another claim, which is what Reed seems to be doing to a degree. 
Um, so that those are that's the end of the announcements. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> so, uh, and we'll uh, again the the hearings have been pushed back to July. Uh, more likely than not, both sides are having problems coordinating and meeting with witnesses. I think there's also a legitimate concern because there's going to be a lot of interest in these hearings and there are going to be a lot of people who want to be in the courtroom during the hearing. Mm -hmm. And with COVID precautions as they are, that's not going to be possible and that's going to present a logistical nightmare. Right. Um, so I think that that is uh, one of the reasons I have requested the uh, joint request made to uh, continue the hearing. And when I get that from Bastrop County, I'll post it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. For those of you that don't know, I have a Rodney Reed discussion group on Facebook. Feel free to check us out and join. Yes, yes. Definitely. All right. So feedback because that should be heating up. (laughs) Yeah. So all right, we're ready for tonight's case. Sheila Davalu. Um Okay, let me start off by saying, spoiler alert, um, Sheila Davalu is a lot like or has a lot in common with Jody Arias, with Dahlia DiPolito, and uh, Dee Dee Moore. You wouldn't and believe her if her tongue is, came I wouldn't believe her if her tongue came notarized. And also, I thought of another one that made one of my coworkers laugh today. If Liar Liar Pants on Fire were a real thing, Sheila's ass would be ashes. <laughs> wow. That took one, that took a second to hit you, huh? Yeah, a little so, bit. <laughs> um, so Sheila's parents are from Iran. Um and they are medical people. Um They've worked in the medical field for decades. Sheila was born in Virginia in 1969. Now, some sources out there claim she was born in Iran, but she says she was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that's probably while her parents were either going to school in the United States or training in the United States or uh, practicing medicine in the United States. Mm-hmm. When she was around two, they did move back to Iran. That would have been like 1971. Okay. The Shah was still in power. And for uh, people like Sheila's parents, it would not have been a bad situation. Mm-hmm. However, in 1979, 1980, when the Shah was no longer in power and the religious uh Crazy. I guess revolution that? occurred in in Iran. 
um, the climate would have changed. And for people like Sheila's parents, it probably would have changed very drastically. Um, they may have even been Christian rather mm-hmm. than Muslim. Um, and I, you know, I had a friend in junior high school. Her family, her father was a professor. And when the Shah fell, he got their family out of Iran because he didn't want them to be targeted by the new regime. And, mm-hmm. you know, was afraid that academics would be targeted because academics are less likely to accept the religious reform that uh, was put in place. Um, so her family returned to the U.S. Now, she is she is kind of, um, I think, one to give stories that benefit her in a way that benefits her the most. And so she wants to claim PTSD from having lived in a, quote, war zone. Uh, But I couldn't find anything that substantiated her claim. And I would expect her parents, if they could leave Iran in 1979 when the Shah fell, that's what they did and came to the United States. Um, And she speaks as though she was educated more in the United States than in Iran, uh, which if they had, hadn't come back to the U.S. until she was in her 20s in 1989, that doesn't make any sense. And that's one of the things with, with Sheila Davalu. She is highly intelligent, but sometimes you wouldn't realize it. Right. Because sometimes the stories she tells don't make sense. Yeah, and I mean, just looking at her, you know, whenever she was asked a question by Pierce, by the way, I really enjoyed watching Pierce in this interview. Um, (laughs) The question she was asked by Pierce, you could tell, like, every time she was trying to think, but every time she'd end up saying something that made it look worse. Like, it was crazy. Yeah. So... Uh, at about age 19, she married a, a fellow Iranian name, uh, and I'm not even going to give his name because poor guy doesn't have any anything to do with this. Um, she went right. on to Stro- Stony Brook College, and then she went to the New York Medical College in uh, Westchester, Westchester County. Now, apparently her husband mm-hmm. was living in New York City, and mm-hmm. while... Sheila was at the medical college, I guess, working on her master's degree. She met Paul Christos. Right. Who was a very, very, very good-looking man. And he was also in a medical program uh, there. He went into public health. Um, she went into pharmaceutical research. At some point, uh, Sheila's husband gets wind of Paul Christos, and Paul and, and the husband get together. And first of all, Sheila didn't tell Paul that she was married. Okay, she lied, and 
said she was available and single, uh, and she probably lied to her husband about, you know, why she couldn't come to New York City to be with him when she was in Westchester County with Paul. Right. Um, some, a, one of the writers on the Snapped episode uh, basically said she's one of those people who likes to create drama. Ah, okay. And isn't happy unless there's drama, uh, which I, I can totally see. So her husband divorced her, leaving her free to be with Christos. And they were together about eight years, and then they got married. Um, Sheila mm-hmm. finished her master's degree, and I don't know whether that was before or after their marriage, uh, because the timeline is really kind of fuzzy. And when she got her master's, she went to work for Purdue Farmer as a, re- a research scientist. Uh, I was never able to find out what she was working on or what type of project she was working on. But okay. she was making big books. Uh, Paul Christos, in right. the meantime, was teaching at Cornell Weill Medical College and mm-hmm. I believe working on his doctorate. Okay. And shortly after they, uh, they, they got a condominium in Pleasantville, New York, in Westchester County, um, they were kind of leading separate lives, and shortly after she went to work for Purdue Pharma, she met Nelson Sessler and began an affair with him. Uh, Nelson, in the meantime, met another Purdue co-worker named Annalisa Ramundo. Annalisa was born in New York City to uh, Philippine immigrant parents who were also in the medical field. Um, she began working at Purdue Pharma around the same time as Sheila. She, They did not work on the same projects or in the same department. So they didn't really have any contact with one another at work. Uh, the only thing that they shared was Nelson Sessler. Um, again, Sheila began this affair with Sessler. She was obsessed with him. Uh, when his affair with Annalisa apparently got more serious, he ended the affair with Davalos. She says he never did, but... I don't believe her. Because if he had never ended the affair, the affair had be, you know, the the whole thing with Annalisa wouldn't have been a big deal. It's only if he was mm-hmm. ending the affair and not having anything to do with her that would make Annalisa a threat or a rival. Um, True. Davalu began stalking Sessler following him, listening to his voicemails at work, she began stalking and spying on Annalisa. And in order to carry on the affair with Sessler, she was lying to Paul Christos. She would tell Paul Christos, my mentally ill brother is coming over. You need to clear out all your stuff because he will get very upset if he finds out I'm married. Uh, Which doesn't make a fucking bit of sense, but Christos, not at all. Just trying to keep his wife happy. 
uh, did not think to say, what in the hell are you talking about? Um, And he knew she did have a brother who had a mental illness. And he knew from the parents that the, you know, the topic of Sheila being married was a sensitive, sore one with the brother. But I I would have put my foot down the very first time. I said, you want to spend time with your brother? Spend time with out of my house. Because this is my house, too. Um, she also started telling Christo stories about a friend named Melissa who was in love with a guy named Jack, and Jack was cheating on Melissa with a girl named Annalisa. Man, medical school is literally Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, this least, is a, the world of pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceutical oh, okay. research, it's like a soap opera. They should have been working at Procter & Gamble. And so, and she would tell these stories and she would ask, she would ask Christos' advice. Should, Anna, should uh, Melissa confront Annalisa and tell her Jack's cheating? And... Um, Eventually, he became annoyed and, and did, you know, ceased to serve as the efficient sounding board that she wanted. Um, she was also telling her friends about this triangle and, and speaking in these hypotheticals. Um, in 2002, uh, the fall, Annalisa left Purdue Pharma and took a job with Pharmacia in New Jersey. Uh, she kept her Stanford, Connecticut condominium and either commuted to New Jersey or worked from home. The commute, depending on where, probably wasn't, I would say was probably less than two hours um, because that part of New York and, and uh, Connecticut are pretty close. Uh-huh. And, you know, Purdue was in Stanford, Connecticut. So it's not too far out of the way. Uh, it's a 31-minute commute between Pleasantville and Stanford. So it's not an inordinate you know, period of time uh, that you would have to commute. It's kind of like going between Memphis and and Memphis and Marion or Memphis and West Memphis. And I'm looking up right now, I'm looking up Pharmacia in New Jersey. Uh, PPAC, New Jersey. Uh, Hang on just a second. So, I mean, I do want to say this much. I definitely, I definitely think that something's different. I think, I think more than just, um, I think more than just Sheila was involved in the uh, Raymundo situation. I don't know if they ever. I didn't hear if they ever fully cleared. Uh, 
Oh yeah, no, they fully cleared Nelson. I'll, I'll get into that. I'll I'll get into that a little bit, uh, a little bit later when right. I talk about Annalisa. Okay, the commute okay. for Annalisa when she went to work with uh, Pharmacia would be an hour and a half. Okay. Okay. Which isn't that bad. Um, so, um, you know, I, it, if you can work a couple of days at home, it, it really cuts down on the, down on the strain. So, yeah, um, yeah. on Friday, November 8th, 2002, Annalisa was working from home around, so between 11.45 and 12 o'clock, um, Sheila clocked out of work and left the office for an extended, uh, an extended lunch. And they had swipe cards that to go in and out of the building you swiped. And it, it kept track of everybody's time. They had cameras because it's, you know, it's a pharmaceutical research lab. Right. You know, they're going to keep track of their employees. They're going to keep track of people. They're going to keep track of who goes in and out the building. Um, at 11.45, so she left right before 11. Mistake on the time there. Um, she left uh-huh. before 11. At 11.45, there was a call from Ramundo's phone to Sessler's extension at, at Purdue. He didn't answer and no message was left. Right after noon, okay. there's a 911 call. The caller claims to have seen someone entering a neighbor's apartment and that man is attacking the neighbor. The caller gives the wrong address. Uh, you can hear the callers trying to disguise their voice, and I think the caller's also trying to disguise their speech pattern. Right. And when the well, 911 operator starts seeking information, the caller hangs up. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, the, the caller, we'll, we'll refer to him as the caller right now. The caller didn't even do a great job of disguising no. the voice. <laughs> no, the caller didn't. The caller didn't. Um, so after the caller hangs up, the operator calls the phone back because it was a it was a call from a payphone. Mm-hmm. And that was answered by someone in a restaurant called the Duchess Restaurant, which was a short distance from Annalisa Ramundo's condo. The operator, once she identified the Duchess Restaurant, she sent police to the complex on Harbor Drive, which is near the restaurant. And, you know, that... Uh, brings one of the things that doesn't make sense. If you're a neighbor and you see somebody going into your neighbor's apartment, you call police from your apartment. You don't go three quarters uh-huh. of a mile to a restaurant and use the payphone. True. Uh, and when police got to, the caller had given the wrong address, but had given the correct unit number. So when the police got to Unit 105, they found 
Annalisa Raimondo. She had been beaten and she had been stabbed about nine times. The weapon was a paring knife. And I believe the weapon was left at the scene. And then right before 1 o'clock, Davalu returned to Purdue Pharma. Now, Davalu claimed to have gone into New York and gone shopping and then gone to her condo for lunch. Um, But she never produced any evidence that corroborated any of that. Right. Um, After Annalisa was killed, Davalu did renew her relationship with Sessler. Although there were some weird things. There's like she invites him on a ski trip with a group, and then he realizes it's not a group. It's just them. Uh, And then there was another thing, and I don't know whether this happened before Ramundo was killed or after. He went to a bachelor party in Las Vegas, and when he was returning in the airport, there's Sheila Davalu on the same flight back to Connecticut. So she sits with him on the phone. I mean, stalking. Um, police, in the initial investigation, there were some things that were odd. When uh, Sessler got home and saw the police present, he went into a boathouse and laid down and have a nap. I guess he was really tired. Um, he was interviewed by police. I think he had a couple of odd, like an injury to a hand, maybe a scratch on his face. Um, but when police checked the Purdue Pharma records, he was at the office all day. He never left until he left to come home that evening. So they were never able to uh, they were never able to develop any information that he had anything to do with it. Uh-huh. And you know he's a he's one of those he's a smart he's a researcher a research scientist maybe he's on the Asperger spectrum on the autism spectrum somewhere so I guess maybe and so his reactions are not going to be you know are not going to be what a more emotional person would expect. Yeah, I guess I guess that would explain his behavior. I just it struck me as really odd, and they never really fully explained why he acted that way. They just said, I, he "Yeah, had an alibi. We're moving on." Um, I you know I think the the funny thing is is that uh, they the explanations are probably so mundane that they don't even strike anybody as all that interesting so they're never included in the stories about Davalu. True. But no, he was he was conclusively eliminated and he was also eliminated by the forensics. Okay. Uh, when Annalisa is killed and she rekindles her relationship with Sessler Davalu starts lying to Chris Goes to get him out of the apartment. She starts saying, you know, her brother's coming. He's got to clear his stuff out. Her brother can't know she's married, blah, blah, blah. Um, she also lied about Sessler being married. And Sessler said, when I was in that apartment, there was no sign of a man living there at all. So I feel bad for Paul Christos. 
Right. You've got your wife making you pack your shit up and go to your parents or go to a hotel and scrubbing you that that condominium of any sign of your presence. Uh, But eventually that wears thin and Christos began pushing back. Uh, He also, he had a meeting with Pharmacia and the people at Pharmacia mentioned that they had a co-worker murdered. And then he went back to, to Davalos and he said, is Annalisa okay? Did something happen to her? Because, um, you know, I just had this meeting at Pharmacia and they had somebody killed there. Did Melissa do something to Annalisa? And, of course, Davalos lied that, oh, no, Annalisa's fine. She's got her job at Pharmacia. She's happy. She's moved on. She and Cecil broke up. Or she and Jack broke up. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that is when, and when Christo started pushing back regarding the brother's visits, uh, that's when Sheila realized she had to get rid of him too. He was going to serve as an obstacle to her relationship with Sessler, who, trust me, if she had gotten him... She would have gotten tired with him. She would have met somebody else, and she would have started this whole fucking sick game over again. True. So, you know, she just, like that writer said, and I agree, she wants chaos. She wants drama. She can't be happy with a normal life. I can't disagree with that. I can definitely get that feel from her. You know, maybe the maybe the initial stages, maybe they lived in Iran when the revolution first began and she witnessed things, you know, that that were upsetting. She claims to have PTSD from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, who knows? I, I, if her parents were willing to talk, and if her parents said, this is what happened, I'd believe them. But I don't believe her. Um, so on Saturday, March 22nd, Sheila told Christos about a guessing game that some friends of hers play. And it's where you're handcuffed and you're blindfolded. And then your partner takes household objects and touches you with them, and you have to guess what they are. Last week, I kind of said it was a sex game, but it, in reality, this wasn't really in a sexual connotation. It wasn't sex. I mean, there, there, there was sexual about it. She was just um, beating the it, shit out of these. No. It, well, no, not that. She was, um, she was going to use it, but she wasn't, they weren't doing it in a sexual context. Right. They were doing it to try to get closer, maybe trust, maybe bond, you know, but it wasn't in a sexual, uh, although there is a similar game, if you watch Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, so, uh, for whatever reason, she mentions it and then doesn't go anywhere with it on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But then Sunday... She's like, oh, why don't we do this? And Paul Christos, bless his heart, he wants to save his marriage. He wants 
their relationship to be back on track. And so he's like, okay, let's play. Um, he apparently had handcuffs from high school. Uh, and Sheila's statements about their relationship and their S&M, bondage, whatever claims that she's trying to uh, or, or imply that they participated in that kind of thing during their relationship, I call BS on that. Um, I don't think that they did any of that stuff. I don't think he ever hit her. I don't think they had a mutually abusive relationship. Um, yeah. I think she's just trying to she's trying to come up with something to justify what she did and what she's come up with before didn't work. Uh-huh. So now she's going to up the ante. Um, so Davalu goes first and then uh, it's Paul's turn and Paul is lying on the floor handcuffed to a chair with a blindfold. Davalu touches him with a few things And then she's heard in the kitchen rummaging. And she returns and touches Christos with something that he says is a candle. And then he feels a sharp pain in his chest. And shortly after that, he feels a second sharp pain. Uh And then... At some point, Davalu says, oh, I think I hurt you. You're bleeding. And then she tells him the candle fell and hurt him. Well, he gets her to remove the blindfold. And when he asks her to handcuff him, of course, she can't find the key. Surprise, surprise. And they end up having to break the chair. And then the key is located. Um, she at, he asks Davalu to call 911. She pretends to call 911. Time goes by. Christos is bleeding. Uh, he's concerned because this is not, you know, you wouldn't expect this from a candle. And uh, he asks her to call 911 again, and he wants to talk to the 911 operator. And she says they don't want to talk to you. They just want you to lay on the floor. Sheila's trying to buy time. She's waiting for Christos to die. Right. And when he continues pushing to go to the hospital, um, she finally has to relent because he's not dead yet. So she puts him in the car and drives him to the hospital, but she drives like a granny at like 10 miles an hour, and she probably stopped at every stop sign or stoplight, and, you know, even though the roads were completely empty because it's Sunday evening, um, she, you know, she had told him ambulances were on other calls and he just had to wait. Um, Jesus Christ. And she takes him finally to, to Westchester Medical Center, but instead hold of going up, to the up, ER, and this is something I, I think you I think you saw her story. Well, I had never really been there, and I didn't know where anything was. It's a fucking hospital, bitch. They have signs, right. big, huge My signs that show is, you where the emergency room is. Has Christos not looked down and seen a fucking stab wound in his chest yet? 
Well, it well, I think yet, he did. But... I, I, I think, I think he did. Um, but you think he was trying to play coy? He, well, he may have been. Um, he may have been kind of shocked and not really knowing what the fuck was going on because, ah, yes, you know, right he I sees see. a stab wound in his chest. He's felt a stab wound. He's felt two. Um, and, you know, I, I think he was probably a little bit emotionally in shock. Right. Um, okay. Because, you know, I, I mean, Davalu comes off as this meek, mild wouldn't hurt a flea character. Right. True. And so he maybe couldn't wrap his head around that the bitch just stabbed him twice and then was stalling right. waiting for him to die. Right. So um so she goes to the rear of the property which is near a mental health hospital or a psychiatric hospital. And then she comes to the back door, and Christos thinks she's going to be she's going to help him out of the car, and she stabs him a third time in the chest. He starts yelling. He starts struggling. He manages to get the knife away from her and tosses it away where she can't get to it. She realizes bystanders are looking, so she's trying to, you know, say, "Stay with me. Talk to me. Stay with me, Scott. Talk to me." Um, the the third wound, hold on, the third wound is the one that nicked his heart, correct? Correct. The exactly, the, correct. Co- okay. Okay. And the bystanders have intervened. At one point, Davalu tries to get the bystanders to let her take him to the ER. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, hell no. Right. And so she we jumps in the car and drives away. It. Because she knows, you know, she should know by that point, her goose is fucking close. Oh, shit. Yeah. So the bystanders get him to the ER. They've called police. Police apprehend Davalu, and she's brought to the station to give a statement. Uh, Christos is taken into the ER. He's actually rushed into emergency surgery because of the nicked, nicked, I think it was a blood vessel. Oh, was it a blood vessel? Okay. And it it was a it it was something. I mean, it was it was, it was something heart involved. Well, they definitely <laughs> said heart. So I mean, and I figure if he's yeah. still alive, that it it had you know it wasn't that bad, but it was still bad enough. You know what I mean? It it would probably be that he was losing a lot of blood very quickly. Right. And Luckily, it occurred. In a the lot of it was, a lot of it was coming out, but a lot of it was probably uh, collecting in the chest cavity as well. And so then mm-hmm. you've got hemothorax, pneumothorax. You know, you've got that blood filling that chest cavity can interfere with other organs. Right. So um, Davalu is she's got a story basically that it's a mistake, an accident, she doesn't remember, and she really was counting on Christos dying. Now, it's interesting when Pierce was asking her about the parking lot, 
And she's like, well, yeah, we had had an argument or an altercation. And my my thinking, I'm sitting there watching, and I yell at these dumb MFers all the time. I'm like, yeah, because you stabbed him three times, you right. dumb bitch. <laughs> of course, yes, he probably called you a dumb bitch for stabbing him three times. I mean, and, you know, and he was entirely right to do so. Right. Um, I I would have liked to have seen Pierce get a little bit more confrontational with her than he did. Yeah. Uh, Because I would have I would have said, well, yeah, did he call you a dumb bitch for stabbing him three times? Because I sure as shit would have. (laughs) Well, then I mean, so I guess now that we've passed the uh, passed the nine one one call, I can go ahead and just talk about it. I mean, he definitely didn't stop from calling her out. Because he definitely said at one point, I remember especially about the 911 call, he's like, uh, that's you. And she's like, no, yeah. no, not at all. And he's like, no, yeah. that's definitely you. Right. But, no, I, I would have liked to have seen him call her out on the whole, you know, because she's trying to say they got in an altercation. And she's she actually lied about, about Paul cutting her with the knife. Yes, before yes. she exactly. stabbed him. Like she literally painted this picture of they're just going around stabbing each other for this fucking game. That's just I'm sitting there yeah. watching this and I'm like, what the hell? But that's that's because her initial stories didn't work. Wait, so hold she's on. Are you come talking up about the scar? Are you talking about the scar? She said something about. Uh, getting cut yeah, she says she has scar. a scar. Okay. Yeah, she, sa- yeah, she says yeah, she, has, she has a scar on her chest that, and, you know, he, and Pierce Morgan asked the, the detective, and the detective said, she didn't have any injuries. Right. <laughs> but, again, she's making up something because her initial story didn't work. Right, exactly. So, um uh, Christos didn't die, and when police were able to get the story from him, uh, Davalu was arrested. Her story didn't work. She was counting on him dying. And that's why she claims, you know, the paring knife. If she wanted to kill him, she would have used a bigger knife. It's like, no, you wanted plausible mm-hmm. deniability. Right, and you're proving plausible deniability because you are now arguing. If I really wanted to kill him, I would have used a bigger knife. Right, you know that's one of those statements that, like, your IQ might be 160, but that one, you're not thinking this through. Yeah, no, not even close. So. And during the investigation of the attack on Paul Christos, the affair with Nelson Sessler was discovered. And it may be because one of the calls that Sheila did make while she was waiting for her husband to die in their condo, she called Nelson and invited him over that evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's funny. She claims either on the interview with Pierce Morgan or, or on the on the snapped interview that she did, she claims that she called him to tell him not to come that night. But once again, 
you know, he says she called and he showed up at the apartment or at the condo that night and saw police investigating Christos's attack. So I'm going to say she's lying. Right. She's got to explain a phone call on her cell phone to Sessler, um, who is listed in the phone as Nelson and nothing else. Um, so he also told the police another thing that he did when he spoke to police after Annalisa was murdered, he did not give them Davalos's name. Davalos's name. Mm-hmm. He should have. He should have thrown her under the bus and then backed it up over her. Right. But I think at the time he was not aware of the levels of crazy bitch that she had ascended to. And so then the detectives from Westchester reach out to the detectives in Stamford, and at some time, at some point, the 911 call tape gets played for the Westchester detectives, and they're immediately like, oh, my God, that's Sheila Davalu. I just spent 10 hours listening to that bitch talk. And that's her. So the connection was made. And then the nail in the coffin, so to speak, was a spot of DNA on a faucet handle in Annalisa Raimundo's condo had a mixture of DNA from Annalisa and Sheila Davalu. Right. They found no foreign male DNA. Um, Annalisa's apartment was spick and span. She cleaned it regularly, top to bottom. Um, I, I think Nelson Sessler and her parents uh, probably you could eat off of her floors. Mm-hmm. So there's no way Sheila Davalu's DNA would be on that particular faucet handle from an earlier visit unrelated to Annalisa Raimundo's murder. I mean, good point. It's just not possible. Um, So the detectives, Davalu had been arrested and charged with the attack and assault and attempted murder of Paul Christos. Um, She went to trial for that in 2004 the detectives continued working and building the case against Davalu for Annalisa Ramundo's murder. Um, so basically the prosecution case had Paul Christos. Sheila, Sheila Davalu did testify and her, basically her defense was, I didn't, I never had any intent to kill him. This is a misunderstanding. Uh-huh. It was an accident. I didn't intend to kill him, but she doesn't, and I think even to this day, she doesn't make the connection. When you pretend to call 911 and you don't, when you tell your husband he just has to wait for the ambulances that are too busy to come take care of him right now, when you drive like a granny to the hospital, when you don't pull directly up to the ER, when you pull up to the back of the property and a mental health facility, 
and then you stab your husband in the chest a third time in the hospital parking lot, you're trying to kill him. Right. It's a problem. I mean, if you can't figure out that all of those things scream intent to commit murder, then I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, And that this, you know, like I said, this is an accident. Well, she was convicted, and she was sentenced to 25 years in prison, which she began serving at Bedford Hills with our little friend, Pamela Smart, also is one of those women, if liar, liar, pants on fire were a real thing, her ass would be ashes. Right. Um, So there was, uh, in 2007, um, Davalu was indicted for Annalisa Ramundo's murder, and uh, her second trial was held in 2012. She chose to represent herself at that trial. Yeah. Uh, at some point during the pretrial procedure, the question you kind of asked me or alluded to earlier. There was an examination for her competence to stand trial. Did they find anything Uh, at all? No. And it may have also been it may have also been that the attorney who was representing her was thinking about a diminished capacity because they had all this evidence about an obsession with Nelson Sessler. And they had all these lies she had told Christos and the love triangle story that she told Christos and a lot of their friends. Uh And so he may have been thinking, let's try for diminished capacity. Kind of guilty but not responsible. Right. Uh, but I, I, that didn't fly. She was found to be competent to stand trial. Uh, she elected to I, represent herself. She's a damn good actress if she's not crazy, honestly. Well, I think that you are equating evil with mental illness. Touche. And it's not. Touche. She's just evil. She's just out to serve her own interests. Um, I would probably, I would guess she's got a borderline personality. So mm-hmm. no one has value but her. And people are only valuable as long as they serve her in some way, shape, or form. Right. So um, so the prosecution had, they had Christos, they had Sessler, they had an expert who basically uh, said that Sheila Davalu and the 911 caller were one and the same based on the um, analysis of the sound waves and the sound characteristics between the 911 caller and Sheila Davalu's voice. He didn't just listen and say, yep, that sounds like her. 
you know, he had the the audio programs that analyzed the the waves and sound things. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can't think I of the words I right now. I tell you what it's called, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, dang. Okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't somebody listening. And, and, and so Sheila Davalu, you know, if her family doesn't think it's her, well, goody, goody on them. Uh, mm-hmm. If her, you know, ex-husband doesn't think it's her or, or thinks it might be her, but he's not sure will bully on him. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what those people think. The jury found the state's expert who did a little bit more than just compare with his ears. Uh, and they, the jury found that, you know, he was credible and they also believe that the voice on the 911 tape was the same as Sheila W's. And, one of the one of the downfalls of her representing herself is she talked so much that it was kind of hard for the jurors not to find that the voice on the nine one one tape was Sheila Davalu. Right. It might have been a little bit more difficult had she let her attorney do the talking um, and their defense I'm trying to make figure out what makes her think she had enough fucking law knowledge to defend herself well you don't have to have a legal degree um, she's well, I like know, I said but... she's a scientist she's a pharmaceutical researcher she's you know she's used to reading a lot she had been in prison for five years. Uh, no, excuse me. She had been in prison for eight years by the time she went to trial. That gave her plenty of time to read law books and cases and try and find an avenue. Uh, one of the avenues that they tried to pursue was that her statements to Christos were privileged and that he couldn't testify against her because they were married. And um, those were, the briefs were submitted by her counsel, but I mean, if she had some hand in generating them, she did a pretty good job. Uh, if she identifies I mean, that as a, a potential, to her, listening to her, she didn't do a terrible job. But I mean, but it was dumb because where where there's a an issue of does this sound like me? The dumbest thing you can do is spend weeks as your own counsel arguing and questioning witnesses and having your jury hear your voice day in and day out. Right. Um, Like I said, it might've made it a little bit harder for that expert 
to convince the jury had um, she not represented herself. So uh, her defense was kind of a, some other dude did it. Uh, she was able to find a witness and bring him in to uh, make it seem like he saw somebody else near Annalisa Ramundo's condo, uh, but obviously he wasn't found very credible by the jury. The jury did convict her, and they were only out deliberating for a few hours. And then mm-hmm. several weeks later, um, she was sentenced to 50 years in prison, which was on the high end of the uh, sentencing guidelines. And the judge also uh, made that sentence consecutive to the New York sentence. That means hmm. she has to serve 25 years in New York, and then she'll be transferred to Connecticut to serve 50 right. years. And basically, um, that, all, that all wraps up as she'll never see the light of day again. Correct. Exactly. She's sentenced um, if She'll be 60, I think, when she uh, gets out of New York and goes to um, Connecticut, so probably about 110. I think her uh, her projected release date is 2079. Thank you. Yeah. I don't even know if I so. can make it to 2079. <laughs> 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 but um yeah so but that's you know I don't understand it's it's funny I don't understand why she didn't plead to Christos I I mean you would think at some point they had to offer her hey plead insanity plead something and we'll give you a little Well bit no they're life. never going to offer insanity they're never going to offer pleading insanity Okay maybe not insanity um, but plead they you know you know something. she was convicted she was convicted of attempted murder and first degree assault Mhm um and possession of a deadly weapon I mean, yeah, I, I I would have expected that, you know, they might have offered her the first degree assault as opposed to attempted murder. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, had she had she done that, they might not have been investigating and building a case against her and Christos. And they might not have discovered Annalisa Ramundo. See, that's the problem. She would have gotten away oh with Annalisa Ramundo if she had been smart enough to divorce her husband. Now, the other thing she claims that you know she was the breadwinner and she it was her condo yeah, I heard that, that she had nothing to gain by divorcing you know by killing her husband. Uh, she could have she divorced him, but divorced him. If she if she had divorced him, if she's the breadwinner and she's supporting him, he could have probably gotten alimony. Right. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, he could have gotten half of the um, half of the condo. 
So I don't know that uh, that uh, divorce would have been cheaper. Like, yeah, cheaper. again, I think I, I think she wanted to kill him for the chaos. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so then her appellate process began. I don't really know anything about the New York conviction because the New York cases are not reported. Okay. All I know is her conviction in New York has been affirmed without published opinion. Okay. Uh, and she then, that was in 2007. And then in 2013 or 14 or 15, um, she appealed her Connecticut murder conviction. Is she, that okay? Yeah. Basically, her issues on direct appeal were that Paul Christos' testimony was privileged and should never have been entered against her at her trial. And bullshit. Well, yeah. Bullshit, first of all, because a lot of the testimony, all of the testimony was given by Paul and by her in her New York trial. Yeah, so, he's the victim. How the hell are you going to say, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but it was all given at the New York trial. So that weighs any privilege. Second, um, she had made identical statements and sometimes she had made statements in front of third parties to Paul, the stuff about Melissa and Jack and Annalisa. So um, those things, that testimony came in not only through Paul, but through the other people to whom she'd made these, told these stories. Um, Mm -hmm. But also the statements that were at issue were lies that she was telling Paul, lies to get him out of the apartment or the condominium, lies about this fictional love triangle that was really a love triangle in Sheila Davalu's head. Um, So the content of the communications is basically what the appellate court found were not privileged. Okay. You know, you can't now your your other comment, there is also an exception when the spouse is a victim of domestic violence. I don't think the judge or the courts really went that far, but they could have gone there because there is an exception when the the spouse is a victim of domestic violence or the statements are made during the course of domestic violence. Although, you know, that would only cover the actual game and the stabbing and the slow drive to the hospital, et cetera. Um, Uh The the appellate court affirmed the trial court, basically finding that the statements – were not made to her then-husband in a manner induced by the the affection, confidence, loyalty, and integrity of the marital relationship. Basically, they were lies. 
and as lies, they're not privileged. Um, not even as she tried to argue they were veiled. The stuff about Melissa, Jack, and Annalisa was a veiled confession of infidelity. But again, the court said, no, that don't fly. <laughs> so, and then um, they, she also raised an issue regarding the presentation of uncharged misconduct uh, by Davalu, and that involved um, possession or, or obtaining a stun gun, stalking Annalisa, stalking Sessler, listening to his voicemails, uh, having night vision goggles to spy on him, surveilling Annalisa's condo, etc. Um, those were uncharged misconduct. They were permitted or they were properly admitted because they dealt with putting the crime in context. Uh-huh. And um, so they were necessary to prove identity as well as motive, means, and opportunity. Right. And then finally, um, she raised a complaint regarding the court finding that she was competently, knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily uh, waiving the assistance of counsel by uh, representing herself. What? 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 So, so you 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 waive your counsel, then you complain on direct appeal that you didn't that they allowed you to waive counsel. What the? That the judge. <laughs> Basically, her argument was that the judge did not do enough to protect her her rights. Um, But you know, but the court found the court found once again that she was mischaracterizing the situation. At one point, um, she even claimed that the judge didn't. Let's see, what was it? She claimed. The judge didn't make the knowing voluntary finding, and he did. And then she complained he didn't ask her something, and I can't remember what it was. And the appellate court is, well, yes, he did. So I think that was, you know, attorneys sometimes mischaracterize things in order to mm-hmm. try to um, plead their case. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it comes back and bites you in the ass. And this is one of those times that it bit her in the ass. Um, mm-hmm. So they found that she, uh, that the court did what he it was supposed to do. It doesn't have to tell you, well, you know, you're going to have a hard time proving your innocence because you're not, in a position to have to prove your innocence. Um, I think it was he, the, the court didn't tell her that she would face the sentence that she might face. And the court, you know, the appellate court said, well, yes, he did. And they quoted the, the language that the judge spoke to Sheila Davalu, letting her know what the potential sentence was. 
Um, and there's a Supreme Court. <laughs> the uh, there's a Supreme Court case dealing with rep- self-representation. And right. Right. So you know, and it's funny, but they will try to say technically, they will criticize the judge, saying the judge didn't meet all the technical requirements because they want a technicality mm-hmm. to get a new trial. Right, absolutely. Um, Don't take the win anyway. So, you get it. Yeah. And so after the Court of Appeal affirmed her conviction and sentence, she sought review at the Connecticut Supreme Court. The Connecticut Supreme Court agreed to review only the issue related to privilege. They weren't going to review the uncharged misconduct, and they weren't going to review the self-representation. The Supreme Court found that the judge in the trial court and the Court of Appeal, contrary to Davalou's, and she was represented by counsel at that point, uh, contrary to her counsel's characterization, she, um, the trial court and appellate court each looked at the content of the statements, not the state of the marriage, which is what mm-hmm. the accusation was, that the trial court found the statements admissible because we were, you know, in a rough patch in our marriage. And that's not what right. the court found. The court found they weren't privileged. The statements weren't privileged because you were lying to your husband. That's why they weren't privileged. And they weren't privileged because you told people other than your husband, you made identical statements to people other than your husband. You made statements in your husband's president presence and the presence of these third parties. So those statements aren't privileged. Um, so that was the end of the state direct review, and her convictions and sentences each became final. Then she moved on to state post-conviction, and unfortunately... I have no clue, although I can guess, uh, she raised probably the same issues on state post-conviction that she raised on indirect appeal, and her um, her claims have been to date denied. She keeps filing new ones, and they keep being denied. Uh, recently, uh-huh. she tried to file... In I think New York, that she had discovered a transcript of a statement given by Sessler, or no, a transcript of a call between her and Sessler that Sessler had surreptitiously recorded mm-hmm. uh, prior to her trial in connection with her husband's attack. And um, she was alleging a Brady violation. But I don't really know the substance of that because it was mentioned in a habeas opinion, but the the opinion of the state courts or the pleadings from the state courts aren't available. So I can't speak to what exactly she raised. Right. Um, but... 
the reason, the the more likely reason that that would not be a Brady violation was because she was a party to the call. A recording of the call was played at her trial. Mm-hmm. A transcript of the call discovered years later is not diligent. Right. If there's a discrepancy between what was played at your trial and what is in the transcript, you were a party. You should have known if the call, the tran- the the recording was not right, you should have been able to say, wait, 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 I never said that. I never did that. Because she was a party to the call. Um, so she should have known that something was up with those phone calls. So, um, and then she went on to federal habeas. I don't know that she's ever filed a challenge in New York to the New York conviction. Uh Um, She filed a challenge of the Connecticut conviction in New York, which was improperly filed and it was transferred to Connecticut. She may have tried oh, pardon me, to file a federal habeas claim on the New York conviction, but she waited too long to do so. So any claims that she did file are just going to be dismissed because they're not timely. Because you generally have a year after your conviction and sentence become final on direct appeal to file federal habeas unless you're pursuing state post-conviction. And then that tolls the time that you have a relatively short time after your state post-conviction concludes to get your federal habeas claim filed. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then in Connecticut, the, the claims transferred Basically, um, most of the claims that she's raised are state law and or evidentiary claims that aren't, that don't implicate a constitutional right, and therefore they're not reviewable on federal habeas appeal. Um, And so she can't get a certificate of appealability, I think. She is trying to pursue a certificate of appealability at the Second Circuit Court of Appeal, and I think that's still pending. Okay. Um, She's kind of raising the same issues regarding the privilege. Um, She also tried to raise a competence to represent herself, but that was unexhausted in state court, and she elected to waive it rather than go back to state court and try to pursue it. So uh, we actually only have two pages because page three yeah, just was blank. That was the quickest three-page episode we've ever done in my lifetime. And I, I know. It was only and two pages. Hey, yeah. It's just three it was, on mine. Oh, okay. It's only two on mine. So. It's all good. Yeah. It actually shows four, but the fourth was blank. Oh, okay. Mine is. What kind of paper do you have? 
Google Drive. Oh, wait. No, yeah. Uh, Google Drive. That's what I opened it in. Oh, okay. I use yeah. Word. So, yeah, may, Word may paginate differently. I don't know. Yeah, probably. So, um, yeah, so that is uh, Sheila Davalu. Yeah, bitch be crazy. Bitches be crazy. That's right. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, dudes be crazy, too. Don't get me wrong. Don't cancel us. But, yeah, she's crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, I, she's she's one of those. She's like, she, uh, what is it, Jody Arias, Dahlia DiPolito, and Dee Dee Moore. I wouldn't believe her if her tongue came notarized. Right. Mm. <laughs> um, and if liar, liar pants were a thing, her butt would be burnt. Well, and also this. Much, I like that one. I'm know, I'm going to use that one too. She uh, <laughs> she it 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 doesn't stop her from being entertaining to watch and just shake your head at. Yeah, because she, she it was almost so bad I was starting to get a headache. She was so stupid. <laughs> yeah, so the snapped episode is pretty good, um, but I don't know if you. I'll, ha- I'll I think tell I you. I'll snapped on Hulu. Yeah, I'll send you the season and episode because. Sheila Davalu is the only woman to have appeared on Snapped in two separate episodes in two two different seasons. Okay. Uh, her first appearance was for the attempted murder of her husband, and her second appearance was for the murder of uh, Annalisa Raimundo. Um, and to address another thing that she raises, she raised, I think, with Pierce Morgan, that faucet handle. She's got this story about the faucet handle being sent from the crime lab and resubmitted to the crime lab. Uh And I really was disappointed in Pierce for not stopping her and inquiring as to what the fuck she's talking about. Right. Because um, in context... When did it leave the crime lab? And when was it resubmitted to the crime lab? She says it it left the crime lab, but it's like, was it at the crime lab or was it at the Stanford Police Department? Right. And was it resubmitted to the crime lab when you were identified and a DNA sample from you was obtained so that the crime lab could compare the DNA on the faucet handle to your DNA to determine whether the DNA on the faucet handle matched your DNA. She claims she couldn't get to the bottom of that quote mystery. But I'm like, did you ask the crime lab people when they testified at your trial during Mm -hmm. cross-examination? Did you ask them, right. well, why did this leave the crime lab? Why Why was this resubmitted? I'm guessing you didn't. 
These are common so. sense things, but you know, ugh, people. So, yeah. But, um, so that is, yeah, that's Sheila Davalu. And, um, she's going to be in prison for a very, very long time. Yeah, she's a, uh, she's a character. Yeah. For sure. Uh, and as far as Nelson Sessler went on to work for another company in, moved to North Carolina, um, Paul Christos is still at Cornell Weill Medical College, still teaching in public health and researching in public health. Um, so, and hopefully he has met someone who's not bat crap crazy and doesn't lie through her teeth and um, hopefully is very happy. Mm-hmm. So... All right. Well, I guess we'll put a bow on it. Uh, again, listeners, uh, Caitlin Rother's new book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Mystery, is available uh, today. Go to your local bookseller. Uh, it's available on Amazon Kindle. It's a great book. Read it. You'll be a fan of Caitlin Rother. I guarantee. And if not, call us and, you know, we'll talk. Uh, we I will be airing a bonus episode interview with Ms. Rother next Wednesday at uh, the link will go up on Facebook at 8 o'clock p.m. And it will go live on uh, Blog Talk Radio at 8 o'clock p.m. That's Wednesday, May 5th, uh, 2021. And just an update from our guest last week, uh, Natalie Voss, Nevels. Uh, there's a picture uh-huh. on Facebook. Apparently, Blueberry is working out to be a good intern with Jitterbug. He has sent a picture of a, a poultice pad that he apparently has destroyed. And removed from his from his hoof. Um, wow. He's still young. He's still learning. But right. Jitterbug, yeah. Jitterbug seems quite pleased. Of course, you can follow Blueberry and Jitterbug on Facebook. Uh, I posted also last. I posted on um, the episode links to Natalie's work at Pollock Report and Jitterbug's columns and I also today posted the uh a link to the stories about blueberry. Mm-hmm. So um so yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I always love the enforce episodes. They're pretty they're they're an interesting change of pace. Mm-hmm. And Kentucky Derby, the Kentucky Derby is Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pulled the post positions today, but I didn't have time to look at anything for that. Um, you know, maybe maybe ahead of the Preakness, we'll do something 
So, all right, you ready to call it a night? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, May 4th, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 8, State of California versus Kevin Cooper. We'll talk to San Bernardino District Attorney Jason Anderson, who will represent the people of the county in defending the quadruple murder conviction of Kevin Cooper. We'll talk to Mr. Anderson about the case against Cooper and the claims his advocates have raised in his request to the California governor for an innocence investigation. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.